let me bring a, a dark side to this conversation. <laughs> right, so, I thought you did. So, <laughs> like, it was all dark. <laughs> I mean, I've had this conversation many times with, uh, you know, with my colleagues. They say, you know, are we doctors or are we service providers? Good day to all our listeners from the Radcliffe Vein podcast. We're hosting another podcast today. I'm Dr. Laura Redman, a vascular surgeon from South Africa. And I have with me Professor Lal Kabnik, who's Associate Professor of Surgery and a Director of the University Vein Center and the Chairman of the Board of the Vein and Lymphatic University all the way from the United States and a fellow vascular surgeon from South Africa, Dr. Zaki Sheikh, who I've worked with before, but we're now on different sides of the country as well. And today we're going to talk about Making a, make a habit of two things, to help or at least to no harm, and is vein disease being overtreated? So venous disease has grown exponentially with so much research and development recently, which is quite positive in understanding the pathophysiology. However, this has also led to an increase in intervention with which comes the risk of overtreating. So I think it's quite a relevant topic to discuss if we're over-treating venous patients, and there is obviously a broad spectrum. And the idea of this is to just be interactive and discuss. So I think, Lal, you have a huge vein um, following and sense and patients. Do you want to cook off with your thoughts on this? Sure. I just wanted to add uh, for transparency, I am the Director of Clinical Operations now of United Vein Centers here in the United States that manage 25 clinics and three OBLs. So yes, I do have a, a large experience. And I started back in 1999 doing my first ablation with RF and I never looked back. And it took about five years to get the early adopters on board and then it skyrocketed with RF and laser and now all these multiple modalities so the, you know, the skinny of appropriateness in terms of venous intervention is that question. And I think that that question of appropriateness goes throughout any of our interdisciplinary procedures that we're doing throughout mankind, et cetera. Um, in 2020, the appropriate use criteria for chronic lower extremity venous disease of the American Venus Forum, the Society of Vascular Surgery, the American Vein Lymphatic Society, and the Society of Interventional Radiology was tested. There were 119 scenarios with that. And the majority of those scenarios amongst the experts agreed in terms of appropriateness. But we know that there are inappropriate uses of venous intervention. One of the things that I tried to do early on was to figure out, was there a metric that we could develop, whether it be the SEEP score, whether it be the VCSS score, whether it be the HASTY score, to try and put them together. And we did look at that from a high level point of view uh, for C2 disease. And we found that if we charted those across the spectrum, that somewhere around 60% of the patients were probably being done for cosmetic reasons. 
And I think well, that's what we have to differentiate when it comes down to medical necessity versus cosmetics. And so it's sometimes very difficult to tell what the patient is really interested in unless you ask them directly. Um, would, you, would you be able to elaborate on those, those cases of uh, clinical appropriateness? You can give us some examples of uh, what, um, what may be considered, um, uh, where that line is between appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, Right, so there, there were a lot of scenarios based on that, and I don't have the exact uh, questions, but for example, if a patient had C1 disease and had no symptoms and had GSV reflux, would you operate on that for medical necessity? No, and I think we'd all be in agreement with that. If, if a patient had C2 disease and had significant symptoms that were referred to venous disease and not something else, and had significant varicose veins, we probably all agree that we would take care of the truncal vein. If a patient had C6 disease and had great saphenous venous insufficiency and no outflow obstruction, we would all agree that we would take care and ablate the saphenous vein. Those are the type of things that, that we're talking about, but there were other scenarios that were there where the audience was mixed and there were some that were not. So I would refer you to the article uh, by Elna Masuda and, and group that was published in 2020, the Journal of Vascular Surgery and Lymphatic Disease. The, the uh, month is July 8th. It's, uh, Volume four, page 505-525. So that's, uh, yeah, I think a large proportion of superficial disease. And the other element in superficial venous disease is that a lot of it is aesthetic. So it, there is that component, um, which is reasonable to treat if a person knows they're coming for that. But again, obviously, to decide on treating deeper, whether you're just doing sclerotherapy or phlebectomies. So Dr. Redman, and, and the question really is with not only superficial venous disease, but now that we have deep venous approaches to venous obstruction and the fact that we're using venous stents, are we overutilizing those two? And I would submit that in C3 disease and the May-Thurner type lesion, I think we probably are. And the criteria that we need to develop is just not necessarily a 50% obstruction. So I think we need to look at that and how we look at that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that's also developing. I think in the beginning, I feel I probably overstated my third and now the majority we pick up, we don't based on, you know, you need to look at the whole clinical picture. Definitely more than 50%. Center. For those, I think there's no defined criteria as you say, but we would we generally look at on duplex whether that vein is compliant or not, because it's you know even more long-standing if it's not, definitely if the patient's symptomatic. Then if there's cross pelvic flow, slow flow, and then put the whole picture together and draw up and only decide then. It's um uh, you know, Prof, with your experience, I think you're probably maybe around 30 to 40 years ahead of where we are in South Africa. 
in terms of understanding and treatment of, uh, of venous disease. A bigger question, like uh, when, we, when this topic came about, are we over-treating? I think there's a fair amount. I would say 80% 80, 80 where we are under-treating, you know? Uh, and that's largely because this kind of technology is mostly available to those with private insurance, you know, or medical aids, you know, in South Africa. In the state, in the state facility, um, virtually, and I can, I can vouch for KZN, it, it hardly gets done anymore. You know, even open uh, stripping of veins were indicated in ulcerative disease. And that's largely because, it's largely because venous disease still falls under the ambit of general and vascular surgery. And there are usually more, uh, you know, well, I suppose, inverted commas, more pressing uh, pathologies, you know, to, to occupy your slate, you know, arterial emergencies, arterial trauma, uh, and so forth. So most of these patients end up suffering for quite a bit, you know, with, the, with advanced disease. So that, that's what I mean. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean in terms of technology. In terms of technology, um, you know, from the private side, we, we you know, we've had, we do have access to to the modern endovenous treatments and we're indicated. But interestingly, you know, we've had one, one option of one of our medical aids that was refusing to manage uh, patients with ulcerative, uh, with any type of uh, varicose veins or chronic venous insufficiency. And um, <clears throat> they managed to overturn that this year, you know, after some, uh, some negotiations where they've decided only to manage uh, those patients that have ulcerative um, uh, chronic venous insufficiency. They said, listen, we'll, we'll fund that because we can, we can see that there's a clinical problem. There's uh, repeated admissions for cellulitis and wound care. So we will fund that. But as far as C2 disease goes, they will not fund that. It, it, would that uh, is, is that a possible way to look at this going, going into the future? I mean, uh, should, should, uh, if, you, if you're paying for an insurance, it makes sense that they should fund what's necessary. And uh, cosmetic, um, cosmetic uh, requirements should be funded privately by the individual. So I think that that is something to be determined. I know that there are patients with C2 disease that suffer. We do know that C2 disease is progressive. We know it's all progressive. And the question is, do we intervene early or do we intervene late if somebody's symptomatic? So you can take the absolute indications, as you said, C4, C5, C6, C4B, 5 and 6, and even C4C now, which has a predilection for a higher increased ulcer rate. Um, should we stop there or should we not let it get to there? So I believe, honestly, that we can prevent most of the venous ulcers by early intervention and not be reactive to a situation and let it get out of hand. So I think there are pluses and minuses. In the United States, as you, as you said, there are many interventionalists that are from all different types of specialties that are involved in venous diagnosis and treatment. And there are many different insurance companies as well as our government insurance that have different policies depending upon what their advisors are suggesting. And you really have to be knowledgeable about all of the different policies from all the different insurance companies because they're all variable. And I wish there was a absolute uh, national carrier charge determination that we could utilize in the United States, but I don't think that'll come in the near future. So yes, it's all across the board. And then we have patients that are self-funded, as you said. 
But even those patients are rare because they know that if they say the appropriate things, they're gonna get an intervention, whether it be cosmetic or whether it be medically necessary. I think what you, you mentioned about prevention, it, it has got a role and almost that's a sort of shift in venous disease compared to arterial disease in that we're not, it's not limo life-saving anymore, but it's quality of life and an improvement of quality of life, which is medically extremely beneficial because those patients generally, you know, healthier and will actually look after their health better than the arteriopaths. You know, it's, a, it's sort of a mind shift in how we're treating them. And Zaki, Professor Kabnick's right about the preventative stuff, because I think it's class two, about a third of them will go on to develop advanced disease if they're not treated. So when should you get it and maintain it for the longevity and health of the disease? More than likely, then the over-treating probably comes in who's treating it. And that's when it comes in about the training and who should be doing venous disease. We're having this current debate in, <laughs> in our societies of because exactly a lot of interventionists will want to just, you know, run vein clinics, but without being trained in the entire pathology from deep to superficial and pelvic congestion. You know, I think that's also where issues come in when there's a lack of understanding of the underlying pathology. And I can add, it's not even that, but it's, it's the tests that we have to prove that there is venous insufficiency and it's the skill set of the sonographer that is looking at this and whether they're appropriate looking at it and how they're looking at it. And so we have across our board have hired people to actually do continuing process improvement with that regard, looking at our sonographers that they're not undercalling or overcalling with regards to how they're doing it and assessing them quarterly. You know, the linchpin really is twofold. It's the interpretation of the physician of what the patient's saying and what they're finding clinically, as well as our people that are actually performing the tests to prove that there's venous insufficiency. So on two points, we have to be careful. So with all those clinics, you oversee the, you said the 25 clinics, do you have a standard of care for all of them across the board that you maintain? So, so it's a good question. We try not to tell our physicians what to do, but we establish protocols and best practice. Absolutely. And from there, they take a look at it. And I've recently joined them over the past 120 days, and we're setting up metrics as to look at and review charts to make sure people are appropriate. Now, you did say something that was very interesting, that you know, it depends on the specialty, et cetera, whether you think they're over, over treating. And, and I would submit to you that there are some really good phlebologists in the United States that do not come from a vascular background or a surgical background or an interventional background. I think it really is really determined by the person and how appropriately they, uh, how appropriate they are whether they're malignantly aggressive or appropriately aggressive. Because we're all aggressive, otherwise we wouldn't be in our specialty. That's whether we're appropriately aggressive. 
true. So in your clinics, then, do you have a range of um, specialists or physicians from different backgrounds in all the clinics? Good question. The majority of our, our physicians are of a surgical specialty. And that's who we, we look for and people that have experience. So the vascular surgeons, the interventionalists, uh, and the general surgeons. And we do actually have interventional cardiologists. So, and they're very much trained in, in the specialty as well. So it really depends on what you want to achieve for yourself and where you, for example, for me, I'm a vascular surgeon, trained vascular surgeon. And in the year 2000, I stopped doing arterial surgery because of, of my knowledge base or lack of knowledge base in venous disease. You know, arterial surgery, we, we pretty much knew what we had to do. We now have different interventions, et cetera. And honestly, if I hear another carotid paper, I'm going, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. But from, from superficial venous disease, deep venous disease, you know, obstructive disease, valvular insufficiency, both on a superficial and deep level, there's a lot of knowledge to gain. And the indications we're also learning. And do we need to complete all of the reflux or stop all of the reflux in order to achieve what we want to achieve? Because really we're palliating patients, right? What is it that our end goal is? So there's a lot more for us to, to learn in this specialty. And I would say that in the future, the vascular surgeons of this world will then split into arterial and venous because it'd just be too much for everybody, all the knowledge, all the advances to come forward. And so I was one of the first vascular surgeons in the United States to declare myself as a venous doctor. And now there are many, many of us. So it'd be interesting to see what happens in, in your country. No, I definitely think we'll go that way. So I, I about two years ago, also decided to leave arterial work behind. I was strongly advised not to, <laughs> but I haven't regretted it for a day. Because <laughs> I think because it is such a developing area and, you know, so much more interventions being done, so much more is becoming understood. And it's interesting because it's still growing. We just really small in South Africa. So I don't think anyone else has Akias completely left arterial behind. But um, I think it's definitely, I agree that eventually it is going to divide like that. Well, I think, you know, whether that happens here depends on, uh, on, on, on how the infrastructure develops. You know, like we largely, the private vascular surgeons in South Africa are largely community-based vascular surgeons and service the needs of that community hospital. You know, and so there's, it's not all arterial work. It may be just like, for example, infrapopulatial work and, you know, and hemodialysis access, superficial vein disease, deeper required. Some of us don't even see aneurysms for a while, you know? So that, that's largely how it is. And if you're working in a larger center, then you would see a different mi uh, case mix. I think it's a good couple of years, you know, before we start looking at uh, veins as a separate speciality on its own. Although I do think it would sort the problem of undertreatment out. You know, if our academic hospitals had a vein unit, you know, to, because lots of these patients are really suffering, you know, um, with, with ulcers that are poorly managed. Um, there's, I mean, doctors have no idea about compression. 
um, patients don't have access to a slate to have vein surgery, you know, leave alone endovenous work. Yeah, we've got the big broad spectrum of mix between first and third world here. Um, but I think it doesn't reflect most of the world. And I think internationally, the division will happen sooner. We just might be a little slower in giving up because there's so few in number. So we have also um, a mixture of, of specialties and diseases. So we have a situation called an outpatient-based lab where there's interventional specialists, whether they be vascular cardiology or vascular surgeons that do lower extremity disease, for example, arterial and venous. So the patients that have CLI or have significant venous disease. And there are people in the outpatient-based labs that are doing ovarian vein embolization, prostatic embolization. And so it's really kind of another specialty where those patients who can be treated as an outpatient in a specific lab that's credentialed, uh, it's another specialty coming. And I guess anyway with intervention now, just thinking about is venous disease overtreated, it can happen of most surgical professions. I mean, how much arterial disease is overtreated as well? Yeah, I, again, I mean, with the arterial side, um, you know, you, you would say, okay, I think the, the, the closest thing that you can compare it to is claudicates, you know, whether they should have intervention in proper work. No, but I mean, I mean, there's, you probably have overstented, not you person, yourself, but we know it happens in arterial disease, especially cardiology, um, a lot of unnecessary stents are, or can be placed. So, so that brings in, you know, the whole, I mean, the, this, this whole thing comes down to oversight. You know, we're talking about overtreatment. So what would be the most appropriate oversight, you know, in, in, in venous disease, you know, uh, in trying to determine which patients or whether the patients are getting appropriately treated. You know, so, you know, there was some talk about, uh, you know, going direct to a service, pro a service provider is, may not necessarily be the right thing. You know, like if somebody comes straight to a vein surgeon asking for, uh, you know, for a venous scan, you know, you're more likely to pick up insufficiency and book them on your list. Um, but I mean, I would, I would argue that uh, a venous provider or, I mean, or, or a venous surgeon has a, would provide you a better quality of a duplex scan. Um, because I find that most sonographers, uh, no disrespect, but they're largely uh, pixel centric, you know, rather than anatomy centric, you know, and it's very hard for them to figure out exactly what's happening with this anatomy. Um, so that's, that's a controversial point. The other issue is this, the, the uh, remuneration models, fee for service model, you know, um, that could also be affecting um, the numbers uh, that are being done. Um, yeah, so I think what we, uh, while retaining autonomy of the surgeon, you also, we also need some kind of appropriate oversight, um, I think, throughout, in all, in all aspects of surgery. And how would, you, how would you suggest that we do that and operationalize that? And then how would you do continuing process improvement? To take you back to that example where one of our funders has decided now to 
to, to support or to, to pay for, for endovenous procedures or for venous procedures, they've started off looking at what's termed necessary vein surgery. Although that's controversial, you can argue that all, you know, CEP2, you know, yeah, we get that, right? they do progress. But what it's allowed us to do is to, um, to open up a conversation about uh, sharing of, of appropriate data, you know, with the funder. Um, that, that's, I suppose at some point that can be, it can be audited. I mean, if, you, if you're a duplex report, and images are sent, you know, um, illustrating um, what the patient has, you know, in terms of uh, his, his skin changes, ulcerations, edema, uh, visible varicose veins, uh, duplex report showing the appropriate reflux. And I mean, that, that, that's the fair amount of effort on the side of the surgeon, I think, to make a case for the patient having a procedure versus, you know, just getting it authorized, you know, uh, based on a one-line diagnosis. I wanted to bring you up to date in the United States because the majority of our insurance companies request all of that information and then they adjudicate whether we can go forward or not. So it's not in our hands. It's really in the payers' hands. If we meet their criteria, as we say, all our boxes are ticked and we're off to go. But they're the ones that say yay or nay. And they can say nay, and then it's up to the patient, but the majority of patients do not go forward with that. Even if we you know, meet some criteria, and then we can object to if they deny us by what we call a peer-to-peer -peer review. So I think what you're saying is executed in the United States, but as you know, indications can be stretched. The history can be stretched a little bit according to how you want to play it and write it. But the thing that can't be stretched, really, if you're being appropriate and you just hit on it, is the ultrasound. But you can have knobology that can make something that looked like no reflux into reflux. So really, it's, it's really here and here and the ethics of which we deal with that and I think you're, you're right, it's, it's a remuneration uh, of which drives some people, but I think it's really our ethics that are important. But how you get back to analyzing, our, our government looks at certain indicators and whether we're appropriate, whether everything has been, all the boxes have been ticked, uh, and now they're even getting more of a review. So they do audits, but I, I'm not sure that there's a, a foolproof method that is sustainable, you know, and, and certainly um, vertical to, to be able to do that. Now, one way, as you said, is to limit the disease process, C4, 5, and 6, or C4, B5, and 6, whatever you want to say, a complication of venous disease. And those others are then patient driven financially, but I have a problem with that too. So I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. And I don't think we're gonna solve it. No, I, I think there's two key points as well is that one, cause we get, um, people should be interested in the, in the subject of venous disease. Firstly, it shouldn't be a sideline thing because it's a grown area. It's, it's, you know, it's still being researched and there's so much involved in it. And although a lot of 
superficial treatment is simple enough. There's a lot of com complications that can occur. So the one is actually having the knowledge and having the correct training. And you're right, that goes hand in hand with ultrasound training, whether you're doing it yourself or somebody with you. And my, my technologist does everything with me, pre-op in the procedures post-op so everyone's followed up the same and you, you know the understanding is great and then the second important thing is and it actually just echoes what you said as well but that's sort of the topic of the of the whole podcast is um the Hippocrates quote um to help or at least do no harm and that's what an oath we've all taken in medicine to actually treat that patient so I think it's not just in venous disease. It was almost a topic, you know, that goes throughout medicine. People do over-treat and what are their principles for doing it or not treating or, you know, managing something. And it eventually does come back to the individual and having the right ethics in place. Let me bring a, a dark side to this conversation. <laughs> right, so, I thought you did. So, <laughs> like, it was all dark. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I've had this conversation many times with, uh, you know, with my colleagues. They say, you know, are we doctors or are we service providers? I mean, we took the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, we've done medicine, you know, for these, uh, for these, uh, these, you know, these benevolent uh, the reasons, branches, you know, help, help the ill and, and find new ways to, you know, to cure disease. But then we sell our souls, you know, to, uh, to the private uh, sector, you know, in the sense where we're now being remunerated by insurance. Now, the insurance from, from the word go makes no mistake about it. They don't call you dear doctor. They say dear service provider, <laughs> because that's what you are. You are a service provider who is being paid, you know, to provide a service. And, and, and that changes things. The moment you accept a fee for a service, you know, uh, the, then I don't think, you know, it's the same language, you know, be bringing ethics and Hippocratic oath and, you know, being that... Uh, you know, that uh, holier than thou doctor, I, I think you have to put on the other cap and say, listen, I'm a service provider. Am I providing the appropriate service? Am I getting remunerated properly? Am I uh, doing something illegal or something, you know, um, I think morality uh, is it's, it's secondary when it comes to this type of uh, thing. Um, so yeah, so this is two ways of looking at it. If you want to be a doctor that works in a system that does not pay you for, uh, there's no fee for service. You know, you work for a vain institute, uh, you get paid, a stipend or whatever that may be, right? And uh, your duty at the end of your time is, is just to provide vain care and order that purely clinically. Then I think we'll be having a different conversation now. I think you're spot on in terms of this. The, the topic that we are raising here is the dark side of medicine. And it's the appropriateness of, of a provider, pardon me, people, a provider, I mean, we're doctors. How, how much training did we have to do? How much education? And now we're being lump summed into other, I mean, that's really the dark side now, if we're gonna call us providers. It's, it's anyway, so, you know, you're right on with this. I, but again, are we gonna be able to solve the few that are, it's not rampant. I don't believe it's across the board. I would submit that, the three of us here are appropriate in most cases. We're generally appropriate. I don't think we're generally inappropriate, but there are a few that are genuinely inappropriate. And how do we police those, so to speak? And will they be found out? And what can we do about it? 
So that's what I've been trying to raise. Then, then I think it calls for a, a policing mindset, which again, we as doctors don't have. <laughs> uh, we're talking about venous pathology. We, we, uh, what, what gets us going uh, is getting into a molecular you know, view of what is happening. Are we making a difference? That, that gets you up in the morning and makes you sleep better at night. You know, but um, when you adopt a policing and mindset, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't do it for you. Otherwise you wouldn't be here, you know? Uh, and that's what it requires. You need like a, a, a healthcare service provider police. And then things are different. Well, I, <laughs> I look at it a different way uh, in terms of that. I, I look at it as an opportunity to educate. If I can educate that person who we think is a bad actor, that's great. If I can educate that person. And I would submit to you that they're making conscious decisions of where to draw their line as to when to intervene or not. And I suspect their line is, is different than yours, than all of ours collectively. And how do you ethically do that? So yeah, you, I guess you're right. You have to please, but how? And then if you, if you do it in the United States and you, and you cause a ruckus to a particular physician, you know, there's backlash. You know, you can just imagine the attorneys that are gonna be involved, et cetera. Don't yet have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna to have to start wrapping up soon, but I think for now, I think if we have the knowledge and we can go to bed and sleep with a clear conscience, we're okay for now <laughs> and we'll have to as you say educate that's probably the biggest thing we can do is keep educating educating and bringing people on board but it is a interesting topic for discussion so yeah thank you both for joining thank you professor Kaepernick with all your experience and wealth of knowledge and all your um starting up of venous surgery which Zaki is coming <laughs> as its own entity <laughs> so thank you for bringing in the south african side yeah it was a great conversation now so i appreciate the invitation and, and thank you for the knowledge in south africa you know it, it it's really amazing that we are where we are and we're pretty unique in terms of allowing different specialties to be involved in venous disease. Whereas if you go from nation to nation, it's not as open as it is. I don't know if that's a good or bad because I find a lot of my colleagues that are really super people in venous pathology and treatment that are not interventionalists or were not trained in, in that specialty. So I really believe that we need a specialty in, in venous diagnosis and intervention or better known outside the US as phlebology. So I really think we're moving in that direction. I know the American Vein and Lymphatic Society are moving, trying to move that direction. And there are many of my colleagues that have tried to do that. And so I think in the United States, if we can have an, an American Board of Medical Specialists in terms of accepting phlebology for lack of a, a a collective term right now, that we'd be better off. Thanks, Saki. Thank you, Professor. We'll keep in touch. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you all. Bye. Bye-bye.